Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Oh, Tracy, today's topic was requested by listener Amy a long way back. Mm-hmm. It's been on my list ever since. And finally, after literal years, shuffled up. <laughs> Uh, Lydia Mariah Child was a writer of children's literature, historical novels, abolitionist tracts, and even poetry. And her writing was prolific. Uh, At times, it was very divisive in its subject matter. And she's kind of unique in that she wrote so many different types of books, right? She wrote particularly basic, friendly advice books on one end of her spectrum, and then, like, really hard-nosed activism on the other side, and a variety of things in between. Uh, She also wrote literature for children. She penned a holiday poem that listeners are definitely going to recognize when we get to it. Uh, And because she was so prolific and from a very early age, uh, there is a lot of ground to cover with her. So we're just going to jump right in. She was born Lydia Francis on February 11th, 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts. Her parents were Converse Francis, a baker, and Susanna Rand Francis, Lydia had five siblings, four of whom survived childhood, and she was the baby of the family. Her family was actually part of the abolition movement even before Lydia was born. Her mother, Susanna, died when Lydia was 12, and that was just the beginning of a series of tragedies for the family. Lydia actually recalled uh, being in a poor mood on the day that her mother died, and she was consequently not attentive to Susanna as she should have been. There's a story that her mother asked her for a glass of water, and at first she was like, I don't want to go downstairs and get it. Uh, This was a guilt that she carried with her throughout her life. Her grandmother also died that same year, several months after Susanna. And then in the fall of that year, Lydia was enrolled in a Medford school called Miss Swan's Academy. She had been homeschooled prior to her mother's death, but her time there at the academy was short. And the following summer, she went to live with her sister Mary and Mary's new husband, Warren Preston. Her brother, Converse Francis Jr., who was a Unitarian minister, was hugely influential in her early years. Converse had gone to Harvard when Lydia was just nine. Lydia looked up to him just immensely and wrote him numerous letters while he was at school, primarily about what she was reading. The two of them loved to talk about literature together. When she was 18, Lydia started teaching in Gardner, Maine, but the following year, she moved in with Converse and his wife in Watertown, Massachusetts, and that's where Converse was working. She was not fond of her first name, and when she was baptized in her late teen years, she chose the name Lydia Mariah, and she preferred at that point to be called Mariah. So we are going to respect her wishes and call her by that name as we go forward. The time she spent with Converse Jr. ended up setting her on the path of writing. It was through a conversation with her older brother that Mariah decided to write her first novel, Habamock, which was a story about life in the early colonies. This book, which was published in 1824, features a romance between a white woman and an indigenous man. They marry and they have a child together, and then the book follows their story uh, as the woman and her son become pariahs of white society. This book, which Mariah wrote in just a month and a half, really challenged other social norms in addition to racist ideas about Native Americans. It examined the roles of women and the expectations they lived under, and it told the story from a woman's perspective. She also makes the case that the rigidity of Puritan life was deeply problematic and a hindrance to the establishment of the colonies. 
This story, of course, keep in mind early 1800s, did not sit well with a lot of people. And it established Mariah, who had published the book under the author listing of An American, as something of a firebrand, willing to tackle problematic subjects and stir the social pot in doing so. And even though her name was not on that initial printing of the novel, she was well-known in some of New England's literary circles thanks to her brother's connections through Harvard, so it really was not any kind of secret that it was her work. Additionally, the book was supported by Boston literati George Tickner, which lent it clout and gave it broader exposure. Her follow-up was a totally different type of book entirely. It was Evenings in New England, intended for juvenile amusement and instruction, was also released in 1824. Uh, It's framed as an aunt, that's Aunt Mariah, telling didactic stories to two children about issues of the day, including topics like slavery, science, and history. And this was a huge success. Yeah, she immediately, like, really hit on something with her her works for the juvenile market. In 1825, Mariah's second novel, The Rebels, or Boston Before the Revolution, was published. And this work was a melodrama, again, centered on women— But it led to a bit of confusion, which persisted for quite a long time. There was an oration that she wrote for the book, which was historical fiction. But in the book, it was delivered by someone who was actually a real historical figure and political activist, James Otis Jr. And that oration she wrote was taken as historically accurate by many readers. So much so that it actually ended up in some school books. And many children in the 1800s learned to recite this fictional speech as though it were a historically significant uh, <laughs> moment in time. <laughs> this um, this reminds me of the very first episode I ever worked on for this show, which was the one about Chief Seattle's oration that he did not say at all. Um, for a very brief period, just through the 1825 to 1826 winter, Mariah attended a Boston boarding school called Madame Candle's Academy, When she returned to Watertown in the fall of 1826, she founded a children's magazine called Juvenile Miscellany. She used this as a platform to educate children about injustice, and she also opened a school, although it lasted just a year. She started writing short stories during this time as well. Mariah met and began a courtship with lawyer, editor, and political hopeful David Lee Child in 1824. He was, like her brother Converse, a Harvard graduate, and David was eight years older than Mariah. He was well-traveled and was the editor of the Massachusetts Journal as well as its publisher, and he was a very vocal political activist. Mariah and David shared many interests, but they were of very different temperaments. Mariah was frugal, romantic, and drawn to mysticism. He loved to spend money, and his idealism was dedicated to reform. The couple were engaged in 1827, but the Francis family was really not in favor of the marriage. David's irresponsibility with money was a concern. But as this tension with the family was playing out, Mariah started making more money through her own work as a writer. So the issue of finances became a lot less of an obstacle, She and David were finally married in 1828. Well, that money thing's going to come up a bunch. Uh, After their marriage, the newlyweds collaborated on each other's projects. Mariah became more active in David's political work, and she also started writing for the Massachusetts Journal. The journal offered a platform for both husband and wife to speak out against President Andrew Jackson's position regarding the people of the Cherokee Nation and its culmination in the Trail of Tears. That, of course, played out over years, and throughout all of it, they were writing articles and essays for uh, the journal about it. 
Yeah, it also included multiple indigenous nations in addition to the Cherokee. So even before that, though, the Childs were no strangers to controversy for their outspoken political writings. But things became a little bit more serious in 1828 when David was charged with libel in the case of the Commonwealth versus David Lee Child for publishing in the Massachusetts Journal a libel on the Honorable John Keyes. David had published several pieces in his periodical and in flyers saying that John Keyes, while serving as Committee of Accounts Chairman for the county, had misused and manipulated county funds, including participating in a bid-rigging scheme to benefit himself. David Child was found guilty. He lost his appeal and he served six months of jail time. He was also named in another libel suit during this time as well. And coming up, we'll talk about how Mariah dealt with the circumstance of her husband's legal and financial difficulties. And we'll do that right after we pause for a sponsor break. So this whole legal situation, which of course led to a significant drop in subscriptions to the Massachusetts Journal, made it clearer than ever that Mariah's income was really crucial to the child's financial stability. Knowing about the differences in how Mariah and David handled money, it is, to me, a little bit funny, or perhaps just very telling, that less than a year into her life as a married woman, Mrs. Child published an advice book titled The Frugal Housewife, dedicated to those who are not ashamed of economy. In the beginning of the book, she included the proverb, Economy is a poor man's revenue, extravagance a rich man's ruin. The introduction of the book opens with, quote, the true economy of housekeeping is simply the art of gathering up all the fragments so that nothing be lost. I mean, fragments of time as well as material. Nothing should be thrown away so long as it is possible to make any use of it, however trifling that use may be. And whatever the size of the family, every member should be employed either in earning or saving money. And this book is full of useful, no-nonsense tips, like keeping up with your vegetables to make sure they don't go bad. Uh, Tracy and I have often talked about her brilliant term, aspirational vegetables that go bad in the crisper. I have them too. Mariah would be very disappointed in us. (laughs) She also talks about doing your own mending rather than sending it out to a seamstress and to prioritize baking your own bread and cake rather than paying for the convenience of the baker to do it. This all sounds pretty obvious, but the writing here is important because it's aimed at a lower-income woman than most of the books for ladies of the day were really doing. And this was an astute approach. Child's writing appealed to a far larger reader base with generally usable information than most books about being a housewife. Uh, Those were often directed at people who were more affluent So this book got into the real day-to-day tasks that a wife and a mother without a staff might face. At a time when her own income was really important, she saw that mass appeal was more lucrative than writing for a more highbrow crowd. The Frugal Housewife was very popular, and it was followed up with two other advice books with slightly different target audiences. In the introduction to her 1831 book, The Mother's Book, Child commented on the market success of her previous volume, writing, quote, When I wrote The Frugal Housewife, some booksellers declined publishing it on account of the great variety of cookery books already in the market. I was perfectly aware of this circumstance. 
but among them all, I did not know of one suited to the wants of the middling class in our own country. I believed such a book was needed, and the sale of more than 6,000 copies in one year has proved that I was right in my conjecture. She also acknowledges that the information that she shares, particularly in the mother's book, isn't new, but that it comes from conversations with mothers. And this book is interesting because it puts forth uh, the idea that the manner in which tiny babies are cared for has a great deal of influence on their, quote, future dispositions and characters. That was not a commonly held idea, and so it was way ahead of its time. Her other book that's usually grouped with The Frugal Housewife and the mother's book is titled The Little Girl's Own Book. And this book features games and advice for girls and foundational lessons very much in line with those two previous books. It includes a rather charming game called The French Roll in which one player is the purchaser, one is the baker, and all the other players form a line called the oven with the last in line being called The French Roll. This is a sort of complicated variation on Duck, Duck, Goose and other games where one person has to outrun another in an effort to move into a different category. And according to Child, quote, this play is a very active and rather noisy one. <laughs> there are a lot of games in this book, and and there's a um, another contributor that she mentions helped her with the games, but, like, they're all, to me, hilarious because they're, like, sort of needlessly complicated, but I guess that would keep children active and also engaged, uh, but they are very, very funny. Mariah's writing was prolific during this early time in her marriage as she strove to truly make a living at it, making her one of the first women to do so in the U.S. She wrote another novel with similar themes to those in Hobomok. In the new work, which was titled The First Settlers of New England, or Conquest of the Pequods, Narragansetts, and Poconokets, as related by a mother to her children and designed for the instruction of youth. The story here centers around white protagonists, the children, finding that they identify more with the indigenous people in the stories than the colonists. And this book was incredibly radical at the time. Among other things, it once again promoted the idea of interracial marriage. But it also was kind of kept on the down low. It did not have any published reviews, and perhaps because it was expected that it would court a lot of controversy, it seemed to have a very minimal and limited release. While Mariah had grown up in an abolitionist household, it was meeting William Lloyd Garrison through her husband David in 1831 that really cemented her commitment to the cause. Garrison, who started his paper The Liberator the same year, had already published some of Child's writings, notably her essay Comparative Strength of Male and Female Intellect. He gave her the nickname The First Woman in the Republic. Child turned her pen to the cause of abolition, and she wrote an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans in 1833. This book, which is considered, uh, you know, fairly important in in the lexicon, uh, detailed the history of enslavement in North America, and it advocated for the end of slavery and for freed people who had been enslaved to become part of society in the U.S., She proposed a multiracial country of equality with educational opportunities for all. An appeal is often referred to as the first anti-slavery book. There had certainly been essays and pamphlets before it, but this was a deeper and more expansive examination of the topic than previous writings had taken on. And it made Child a target in a lot of ways. She was no longer welcome among many of her white peers, And that mass appeal that she had cultivated through her books for women and girls 
really dried up pretty quickly after this. The year after an appeal was published, Juvenile Miscellany, which had lost a huge portion of its subscribers due to Child's outspoken stance on abolition, folded. She also lost her borrowing privileges at the Boston Athenaeum. This did not diminish Mariah Child's dedication to ending slavery. She made no effort to win back readers she lost through her writing in an appeal, at least not initially, and instead she just wrote more on the subject, including the story collection The Oasis, which featured stories, poems, and essays about Black enslaved people, but it was intended for a white audience. The idea that she had was that the stories within it would help people see enslaved people as people, and it might help stoke the fires of abolitionist ideals in readers who had perhaps been reluctant to join the cause. Amidst all of this, David's money problems continued to mount. His law office had folded, and he was arrested for his unpaid debts. For six months, the childs lived with Joseph and Margaret Carpenter, who were Quakers in New Rochelle, New York, Mariah helped at the school there, including working on its desegregation plan. She published another book, Authentic Anecdotes of American Slavery, in 1835. And that book collects stories and accounts of witnesses to enslavement, some of which are, unsurprisingly, incredibly dark in their content, all of this done to illustrate the inherent inhumanity of the practice of enslavement. In one passage, Child writes, quote, A prominent feature in the system of slavery is the bluntness of moral feelings and the dimness of moral perception inevitably induced by it. Even conscientious men and women often find it difficult and apparently impossible to apply to this subject the most universal rules of justice and the most common maxims of humanity. This great evil originates in a fixed habit of not regarding the colored race as brethren and sisters of the human family. In 1835, Child's book, Anti-Slavery Catechism, was published. This is, as its name suggests, a series of questions regarding slavery and the treatment of enslaved persons, answered in essay form by the writer, debunking a lot of the myths and watered-down accounts of, of enslavement. Of note is the inclusion of the story of the Lullery Mansion in New Orleans burning and the torture of enslaved people there that was revealed in the aftermath of the blaze. In Mariah's writing, she gets the name wrong. Instead of Lullery, she writes it as Salary. That fire happened on April 10th, 1834, the year before anti-slavery catechism was released, And the horrendous revelations of it were undoubtedly on the minds of abolitionists. There's been some discussion about that particular discovery. The last time we talked about that on our social media, we had some folks that became like Lollary defenders, um, saying that a lot of the descriptions were really overblown. And it was still a place where people were being bound and physically punished. Yeah. It's another one of those it wasn't that bad narratives that are kind of horrifying when you really stop and think about what they're talking about. In 1836, Child also published a historical romance called Philothea, which was set in the 5th century BCE. Uh, Early 20th century critic Carl Van Doren once described this book as, quote, a gentle, ignorant romance of the Athens of Pericles, the fruit of a real desire to escape from the clang of current life. Uh, it was a little bit of an escape for Mariah to write about something other than than social justice issues at the time. But in the time that it was released, the reviews for Philothea were really quite good. 
Lydia Mariah Child did try to write one more book of advice for women in 1837. That was The Family Nurse, but sales were poor due to her more controversial writings. While the reaction to her work had immediate and unfortunate impacts on her life, including her finances, she continued to champion abolition. And while an appeal and other writings cost her personally, they really helped the movement gain support. Yeah, there were a lot of of prominent people in her time who said, I I read an appeal and it it really changed my mind about how I thought about this issue. So, I mean, there is documentation of it really having a strong influence in its own uh, contemporary writings. Just as her audience for her more sort of popular culture books was lagging, though, she did get a job offer. In 1841, Child started working as the editor of the National Anti-Slavery Standard. That was the weekly paper published by the American Anti-Slavery Society. David also joined the staff, but in 1844, they had reached a point where they had some conflict with William Lloyd Garrison, who was running the American Anti-Slavery Society, over the editorial direction of the paper. The Childs uh, both resigned officially in 1844. There were strains on their marriage during this period, though. David filed for bankruptcy in 1842. After his law career tanked, he had tried to uh, farm beets for a while to provide an alternative to cane sugar because of its ties to slavery. He had not done well with this enterprise. He had also accrued a number of other debts through poor management of his money. In early 1843, Mariah chose to separate her finances from his completely, She also made the choice that she was going to stay in New York, whether he did the same or not. Yeah, uh, you'll sometimes see this discussed in biographies as like a break that was really ultimately good for her because she did some of her best writing in this gap where they were kind of not officially separated, but they weren't together all the time. Uh, Letters from New York was a two-volume set that published in 1843 and 1845, and it featured an assortment of essays, mostly that Child had written for the National Anti-Slavery Standard while living in New York for that job. And the title got its name from a column that Mariah had written for the paper, and the book covers a wide range of topics, such as abolition, women's rights, temperance, poverty, her first visit to a Jewish synagogue, and the experience of ringing in the new year in New York City for the first time. Her writing on women's rights is sharp, and at times it's biting. She wrote, quote, On no other theme, probably, has there been uttered so much false, mawkish sentiment, shallow philosophy, and sputtering, farthing-candle wit. When it came to the various ways in which men treat women in social settings, she cut right through it in this book, writing, quote, This sort of politeness to women is what men call gallantry, an odious word to every sensible woman, because she sees that it is merely the flimsy veil which foppery throws over sensuality to conceal its grossness. So far is it from indicating sincere esteem and affection for women that the profligacy of a nation may, in general, be fairly measured by its gallantry. This taking away rights and condescending to grant privileges is an old trick of the physical force principle. And with the immense majority, who only look on the surface of things, this mask effectually disguises an ugliness which would otherwise be abhorred. We're about to talk about a slightly surprising event in Child's life, but first we will pause for a little break and a word from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Miss in History Class going. As 
As her essays were being collected into Letters from New York, Lydia Mariah Child became involved in an attempted murder case, also in New York. A woman of 25 named Amelia Norman had stabbed businessman Henry Ballard on the steps of the Astor House Hotel uh, and tried to kill him. Ballard survived, but as the story of his relationship with Amelia Norman came to light, he started to look to many people less like a victim and more like a predator. Ballard had really pursued Norman until she started a relationship with him. When she had a child, as a result of this affair, he abandoned her. When she was able to see him again and ask him to support their child, Ballard was said to have suggested that she turn to sex work to support herself and the baby. Lydia Mariah Child heard about Amelia's story while the young woman was in jail awaiting trial, and she took up her cause. And this was actually kind of a tricky space for her to navigate. While Child was adamant that the treatment of women, even in the most polite-seeming societies, was always based on a power imbalance, in part because of the physical power many men had over women, she was also staunchly anti-violence. Norman had stabbed Ballard. That was not a question. She had openly admitted to not only having done so, but having regrets that she had not actually managed to kill him. So that was not quite in line with Child's nonviolent ideology. When Mariah wrote an article about Amelia's story for the Boston Courier, she was clear that she was not excusing or condoning the stabbing but made the case that it was an unsurprising reaction of a desperate woman who had been the victim of the inherent violence of a sexist society. Child support and similar writings of other journalists created a surge of more public support, and by the time of the trial, it seemed like the whole thing was more about Ballard as a seducer than Norman as an attempted murderer. So despite all of the evidence involved, Amelia Norman was acquitted. From 1844 to 1847, Child published three books in a series that were titled Flowers for Children. And this project was, according to Child, a response to many requests that she had had since the closing of Juvenile Miscellany to collect the works from that periodical. But most of this was new writing. The second volume in Flowers for Children features a Thanksgiving poem that's incredibly well-known and has outlived most of her other work in terms of popularity, It was called The New England Boys' Song About Thanksgiving Day, but listeners will probably recognize it better by its first line, which is over the river and through the wood. While most modern versions invoke Grandmother's House as the destination, the actual first stanza was written as over the river and through the wood to Grandfather's House we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. I feel like that song comes up everywhere all the time during the holidays. It does. Um... It it doesn't actually snow that often in November in Massachusetts, though. <laughs> Maybe it did more back then because uh, we've seen plenty of evidence of spring being earlier and winters being warmer over the last century and however long. Right. Or maybe she just liked the idyllic imagery of snow. Uh, (laughs) This was, of course, not her only writing project during that time. Her book Fact and Fiction came out in 1846. And this group of stories kind of hints at what might have been going on in the child's marriage, but that's generally speculation by literary analysts. It's fiction, like many of her works that explore real-world issues. So it's hard to know uh, when she talks about marriage and, and how women are treated in marriage if she's talking about her own or just in general. This book did not do well with critics. She talked about sexuality more than I think most people were comfortable with at the time, which did not help it. 
1853, Lydia and David, who had bounced around through various rental properties and the homes of friends, both together and separately, moved together to Wayland, Massachusetts, into Mariah's father's house. Mariah looked after her father for the remaining three years of his life, and then after he died, Mariah and David remained there in that home for the rest of their lives. Yeah, there's a lot of um, speculation about her relationship with her father. He was kind of a, a, a brusque man, and she always felt like she never lived up to what he wanted. And so some people thought it was kind of interesting that the second he wanted her help, she just ran to his side without question. Um, but the, uh, that's how that all played out. Uh, another book, The Progress of Religious Ideas Through Successive Ages, came out in 1855. And this book is a history and analysis of various world religions through time. And Child's hope with it was that the three-volume work would help people tolerate one another's religious views, although it is really quite clearly very pro-Christianity in particular. In 1857, Autumnal Leaves, Tales, and Sketches in Prose and Rhyme was published. And this, like other works by Child, is a collection of fictional shorts that address issues that she had written about pretty often, including women's rights, abolition, and religion, among others. So we've talked on a previous episode about John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. And that attempted slave revolt galvanized a lot of abolitionists into fresh action, and that included Mariah, who wrote a new pamphlet titled Correspondence Between Lydia Mariah Child and Governor Wise and Mrs. Mason of Virginia. And this was published by the Anti-Slavery Society. Prior to this point, Child had kind of pulled away from her work with abolitionist groups because there was constant infighting. She still believed in abolition, but she just didn't want to associate with any of the organizations around it. Bickering factions among William Lloyd Garrison's followers during her time editing the National Anti-Slavery Standard had really soured her opinions on the movement, although certainly not the ideals of abolition and equality. In it, Child denounced a myth that she had been trying to break for years, and that was the myth of the benevolent enslaver. Leading up to this point, Senator James M. Mason of Virginia had made a statement in a letter to Child characterizing the treatment of enslaved people as kind and caring, noting that white ladies of Southern households often assisted in enslaved women's births. Mason also went after Child herself, suggesting that meddling in other communities instead of worrying about her own indicated that she was not a true woman. And Child responded, bitingly and famously, that almost all of the women she knew in the North cared for the people in their communities in various ways, and that she had, quote, never known an instance where the pangs of maternity did not meet with requisite assistance. And here in the North, after we have helped the mothers, we do not sell the babies. More than 300,000 copies of this pamphlet were distributed. Child and her husband were advocating for an end to slavery right up to the Civil War. She wrote a number of pamphlets in 1860 using different rhetoric aimed at different audiences. In 1861, just as the tension in the country over the issue of slavery was really boiling over, Harriet Jacob, who had escaped enslavement and lived in terrifying conditions on the run, told her life story in a book titled Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Lydia Mariah Child edited this book, and it opened up the discussion about sexual abuse of enslaved women in a way that had never really been done before. 
Yeah, it was so frank in some ways that even some abolitionists were like, this is very uncomfortable. I'm not sure we should be publishing this. Um, But after the war, Mariah continued her advocacy. She had, from the time of writing her book An Appeal, trumpeted the need for education for the Black community, as well as for the end of miscegenation laws, as a way to truly enable full and equal integration. And to help on the educational front, she published a book called The Freedman's Book in 1865. The Freedman's Book opens with the following passage, quote, To the Freedman, I have prepared this book expressly for you with the hope that those of you who can read will read it aloud to others and that all of you will derive fresh strength and courage from this true record of what colored men have accomplished under great disadvantages. I have written all the biographies over again in order to give you as much information as possible in the fewest words. I take nothing for my services, and the book is sold to you at the cost of paper, printing, and binding. Whatever money you pay for any of the volumes will be immediately invested in other volumes to be sent to freedmen in various parts of the country on the same terms. And whatever money remains in my hands when the book ceases to sell will be given to the Freedmen's Aid Association to be expended in schools for you and your children. This book contains writings by Child, including, as she said, biographies of notable Black figures, including previous podcast subjects like Ignatius Sancho and James Fortin. And it also includes a number of advice essays similar to her early books for women, so practical advice about everyday things like maintaining good health by drinking water and getting fresh air and good nutrition or caring for animals. Uh, But it also contains writing by a lot of other people. The poem The Last Night of Slavery by James Montgomery is included, as is Frederick Douglass's A Pertinent Question and Phyllis Wheatley's The Works of Providence. In 1867, Child published a new novel called A Romance of the Republic. This story about two sisters in an enslaved New Orleans household uses fiction to once again examine the ideas of racism and patriarchy. The idea of interracial marriage is held up as both a natural thing and ultimately good for society, while she works to show an egalitarian society as the ultimate goal, we should mention that this definitely features Black people in the story integrating into white society by assimilating to white ways. This novel was not a success in any way. She also took up the cause of indigenous cultures in the United States once again at this phase of her life, publishing An Appeal for Indians in 1868. And this work mirrors an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans in that it calls out the many ways that indigenous people have been mistreated and offers ideas about how justice might be brought to those communities. David Child died in 1874, And though they had bumpy phases over the years because of his financial problems, in their last years together, the couple had actually grown very close. David had become her best friend and supporter, and so his loss was acute. In 1878, Mariah wrote Aspirations of the World, A Chain of Opals, which she referred to as her eclectic Bible. This was a collection of religious stories from various cultures and various time periods intended to show how similar humankind was around the world. Lydia Mariah Child died on October 20th, 1880, at her home in Wayland, Massachusetts. In 2007, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. I'm glad that you picked this one. Me too. Uh, She has never been, like, at the tippy top of my to-do list, but sometimes when I've been looking for uh, winter holiday-themed episodes, she uh, has come up specifically because of Over the River and Through the Woods, 
But of course, there was a whole lot more to talk about than that. Yeah, uh, she's she's interesting for that reason, obviously. But I I had this moment where I was like, "Ooh, should we have saved this for the holidays?" But as I look at her story, that's such a tiny piece of it that it would have felt really weird. Yeah, tiny, tiny bit. And she is really interesting. We'll talk a little bit more in our behind the scenes about kind of my perceptions of of her writing and and where it falls on the spectrum of. Um, viewing all of these things through the lens of a white woman of the time um, and how it's a little bit different than some other writings in that regard, but also, you know, some of the similarities. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I did find her really, really ch- charming and fascinating. And I, I love that she was not afraid. She was so smart about calibrating who she thought the reader of any given piece might be Mm -hmm. to make it as impactful as possible for them and, like, appeal to their sensibilities. But I love that uh, once she got into that that last pamphlet, she just was not afraid to throw the whammity-blam at all and was just like, no, you're horrible. Oh, yeah. Um, Let me tell you all the ways you're horrible. (laughs) Prior to that, she had really seemed to to try to foster this idea of, like, surely we can find some kind of compromise between the northern states and the southern states. And by that point, she was like, there's no compromise possible. Like, this is wrong, and we have to end it right now. Um, which is why she is so, uh, I don't know if tart is the right word in her her writing in it, but she is, she's not holding back at all. Uh, I encourage people to read her writing. It is because it's across so many genres Sometimes it's very charming and sweet, and other times it is very biting and direct. And mm-hmm. and it's uh, I saw one thing that mentioned that she was not what anyone would call a phenomenal writer in terms of being a wordsmith. Sure, uh, but she was very smart about how she put together narrative, and like I said, who who might be reading it. So I really enjoyed doing the research on this one. Um, I have fun listener mail about another show that I had really enjoyed doing the research on, uh, which is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge episode. Uh, And it is from our listener, Jeff, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. My husband and I always enjoy your show. We were fortunately able to see you live on stage before the pandemic at your Buried Alive show at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. It was such a great crowd and so fun to see all the different people who enjoy the show. I couldn't agree more. I miss touring so much. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes on to say, we recently listened to your episode on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. I had no idea Gertie opened the same week as the first floating bridge over Lake Washington. That bridge, originally the Lake Washington Floating Bridge, eventually renamed Lacey V. Murrow Memorial Bridge, was the world's longest permanent floating pontoon bridge when it opened. At over 6,600 feet long, it connected Seattle with its eastern suburbs over what eventually became I-90. However, it, like the first Tacoma Narrows Bridge, also suffered an unfortunate fate. In 1990, it sank after workers accidentally left the pontoon doors open during a windstorm over the long Thanksgiving weekend while the bridge was being resurfaced. Local TV news footage at the time shows floating cars and accounts of people narrowly escaping the collapse. Part of the sunken bridge still lies in shallow water underneath its replacement, now the home of many crawdads. I have attached some photos of the bridge from when we scuba-dived it several years ago. Uh, and he linked us to his his Flickr account. Um, one, thank you so much for writing. I actually didn't know that much about uh, the bridge over Lake Washington. Uh, like I said, even though I lived there when I was a kid, for some reason that one was never really on my radar. But I have to say this. Jeff's pictures of crawdads managed to make them look like the cutest things on Earth. <laughs> and I enjoy ocean creatures, but these are 
like animated film level cuteness in some cases. Some of them are really, really adorable. So thank you so much, one, for um, sharing that info about the other bridge in the area that (laughs) didn't go so well, although uh, because of a a moment of forgetfulness rather than a structural error, uh, and also for sharing these adorable pictures. Thank you, thank you so much. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. If you would like to subscribe, that is easy as pie. You can do it on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.